Let's play pretend for a moment. I want you to imagine, imagine you boarded a plane that left Barcelona an hour ago. Right now, you are an hour away from your destination, Dusseldorf, Germany, 38,000 feet above ground level, and conveniently, seated in one of the front rows. Your seat is away from the window, so you have a clear view of the cockpit door and are close enough to the exit to be one of the first to leave when the plane lands. Suddenly, that cockpit door swings wide open and you catch a glimpse of the pilot in command, Captain Patrick Sodenheim, huddling out, shutting the door securely behind him and taking a turn into what obviously must be his bathroom. Immediately, a dark joke crosses your mind, but you laugh it off. Come on, you tell yourself. There are always two pilots on a plane, and the other one is definitely in the cockpit. So, you adjust in your seat and try to catch a nap through the final hours of what has, so far, been an uneventful journey. But, just as sleep tries to take you, a loud banging noise brings you back. It's coming from the front. You are now wide awake. What's happening? A flight attendant zips past your seat with a crowbar and hands it to the captain who is desperately trying and failing to pry open the same cockpit door. You watch as he helplessly screams for the pilot within to open up. Everyone in the plane is confused and panicking. Your emotions follow suit. Terror twists your stomach into knots as you try to make sense of the situation unfolding before your eyes. Is the captain locked out of his own cockpit? Why can't he get in? Wait, is the other pilot inside? The plane descends in a way it shouldn't. Monotonous alarms blare. Chaos. Everyone is screaming, shouting, praying, and then the captain screams at the top of his lungs. Open the damn door! Welcome or welcome back to Twisted Minds. My name is James and today we are going to dive into the devastatingly sad and diabolically shocking case of Andreas Lubitz. On the 24th of March 2015, Andreas Lubitz, a co-pilot on German Wings Flight 9525, locked out his pilot and deliberately crashed his plane into the Alps, killing himself along with 149 others on board. In the aftermath of this heart-wrenching tragedy, Everyone had just one question on their mind. Why? Why did a first officer, a co-pilot, whose primary responsibility was to safely transport his passengers to their destination, do the exact opposite? At first, terrorism seemed to be the obvious answer, but it didn't take long for authorities to discover that Andreas Lubitz was no terrorist. Andreas Lubitz was a deeply troubled, incredibly evil man aided by a broken system. And before Andreas became the suicidal mass murderer of March 2015, he was an unassuming native of the old town of Montebourg, Germany. Born on the 18th of December 1987, Andreas Lubitz had always wanted to be a pilot. In a world where many, for no fault of theirs, either don't have a clue about their future or are too overwhelmed by the choices available to them, Andreas knew exactly what he wanted and went for it with an impressive laser-like focus. This dogged determination took center stage in his academics. And by the time he was finishing up high school, Andreas was top of his class, finishing with flying colors and graduating, third most orderly of his graduating class. However, behind Andreas's undeniable brilliance was his parents' unwavering support. His father, Gunter Lubitz, a banker, and his mother, Ursula, a piano teacher, had spared no expense in ensuring that their son had a smooth childhood. Together, they sponsored their son's membership at an aviation club in his hometown called Luft Sport Club Westerveld, where he trained hard and eventually became an expert glider pilot. And in September of 2008, their efforts would pay off when the young man was accepted into Lufthansa Flight Training School in Bremen, Germany. 
Here, he would spend a year solely on theory and written exams before he could have any flight hours. The chance of entering this training school was, and still is, extremely low. Out of the thousands of applicants, only 5% are accepted because the screening process is rigorous and extensive. And to top it off, the school also happens to be quite expensive. At the time, the tuition averaged somewhere around $80,000, a figure that Andreas's parents couldn't afford. But there was a debt repayment scheme in place that would deduct the tuition from his salary over the course of his working career. Many years later, as investigators tried to make sense of the devastating crash, they pondered over this detail. Could the repayment scheme have been a contributing factor to Andreas's mind-boggling future crime? At the time, there were no reports from anyone who knew him that the fees visibly troubled Andreas or held him from pursuing his career. In November of 2008, the tide suddenly turned against Andreas Lubitz. Just two months into his training, Andreas suffered a medical emergency so severe that he was rushed back home to be hospitalized. In his hometown of Montebauer, a psychiatrist, an individual whose identity is protected by German privacy laws for reasons that will soon be made obvious, diagnosed Andreas as having a deep depressive episode with thoughts of suicide. This same psychiatrist treated Andreas with intense psychotherapy and two powerful antidepressants called Serpilex and Metazapine. Now, there are two things I must bring to your notice here. Before this episode of depression, nothing on Andreas's medical records showed that he had suffered anything similar. Secondly, the drug Mirtazapine that the Montebauer psychiatrist had administered to Andreas can, on occasion, induce dangerous side effects, with the FDA warning including suicide risk as some users have experienced increased suicidal thoughts and behaviors. The Montebauer psychiatrist also attributed the depression in part to something called modified living conditions. In simpler terms, the Montebauer psychiatrist implied that Andreas's sudden relocation from Montebauer to Bremen and the resulting separation from his parents and siblings were the major culprits for the severe depressive episode. Andreas's parents, on the other hand, would also report much later that they had noticed their son had developed an unfounded fear of failure during his time away. To top it off, Andreas also developed tinnitus during this time, a constant ringing of the ears that is often associated with depression. Now, anyone who has suffered depression of any kind would be the first to tell you that it takes a while for these episodes to pass. And if they were generous enough, they would also let you into another harsh reality that comes with the condition. More often than not, the episodes come back. And this is where I believe the danger began, in the self-destructive odyssey of Andreas Lubitz. Because just six months into his treatment, the Montebauer psychiatrist declared that Andreas was better. In their words, a considerable remission had been obtained. The Montebauer psychiatrist even recommended in a letter to German aviation officials requesting Lubitz to be allowed to resume his training in Brennan, saying, patient alert and mentally fully oriented with no retentivity or memory disorders. Mr. Lubitz completely recovered. There is not any residuum remaining. The treatment has been finished. Unsurprisingly, this clinical verdict from the psychiatrist didn't raise any red flags. Mental issues were, and arguably still remain, a gray area for most institutions. And by most estimates, six months is considered long enough for recovery. However, investigators would later unearth an unethical detail. The same Montebauer psychiatrist had actually continued treating Lubitz with the powerful antidepressants we mentioned earlier. 
despite assuring officials that Andreas had fully recovered. If you can't see why this is a problem, consider this. The rules at the time were strict enough that even after the psychiatrist's recommendation, Andreas still had to wait extra months before his student pilot license was restored. And even when it was restored, there was a caveat that clearly stated that any further psychiatric treatment for depression, any more meds, would result in his automatic grounding, which would mean a permanent end to Andreas's flying career. For a high achiever like Andreas, who had placed all of his eggs in one basket and sacrificed everything to become a professional pilot, you can imagine the fear he must have been living with. And we both know that fear is a nasty motivator for volatile outcomes. I'm trying my best not to speculate here because it is easy to judge when you are not a character within the story, but you can also already see how wide the mesh of culpability is spreading. The training school was aware of Andreas' depressive episode, but they probably weren't aware that Andreas was still on drugs. However, shouldn't they have taken his diagnosis a little more seriously? If they had been a little more vigilant, could they have prevented Andreas from becoming the destructive weapon he eventually became on the 24th of March, 2015? These questions I am asking are the same questions everyone from the investigators to the media asked in the aftermath of the crash. However, by August of 2009, roughly a year after his depressive episode began, Andreas returned to the flight school. By early 2010, Andreas Lubitz was done with his ground course training in Bremen. Now he was headed for a four month primary flying training program at Lufthansa owned flight school in Phoenix, Arizona. Simply put, this was where the practicals began. However, he first had to fill out a student pilot document required by the US Federal Aviation Administration. Now pay close attention to this. When Andreas was asked on this FAA form if he had ever been diagnosed with mental disorders of any sort, including depression and anxiety, Andreas ticked no. He lied about his depressive episode and failed to fill in the medical treatment that he received. But this is where the plot thickens, and the net of culpability spreads even wider. As fate would have it, Andreas was caught in his lie. An aviation doctor in Germany whose job was to methodically vet documents for the FAA, cross-checked, spotted Lou Bitt's false statement, and promptly reported the deceit to the appropriate authorities. In an ideal world, this should have been the end of the road for Andreas Lubitz. The consequences for lying on an FAA application form sway between being permanently banned from flying and the more severe punishment, five years behind bars. These laws that govern the aviation world are uncompromising for an obvious reason, passenger safety. Unfortunately, we don't live in an ideal world. And instead of suffering the consequences of his actions, the FAA, despite being aware of Andreas's history of depression, gave him a slap on the wrist in a letter that seemed to dance around the gravity of the man's misdeed without even mentioning the fact that he had, in fact, lied. The letter in question read, we are unable to establish your eligibility to hold an airman medical certificate at this time. Due to your history of reactive depression, please submit a current detailed status report from your prescribing physician. So the FAA gave a lying, possibly depressed pilot another chance at applying. And unsurprisingly, Andreas took the second chance and did the right thing. He filled out an honest report that detailed his history of depression and medication. And what did the FAA do next? Well, they let him fly. What were you expecting? At this point, can we take a moment to go over just how wide this net of culpability is spread? First, we have Andreas himself, who, either out of fear or desperation or both, 
was breaking the rules by lying about his antidepressant use. Then we have the Montebauer psychiatrist, who facilitated Andreas's use of antidepressants. Then we have the Lufthansa training school, which should have done its due diligence concerning Andreas's case. And of course, the FAA themselves, who gave a pass to Andreas after catching him in a lie that should have put an early end to his precarious career. Good. Now let's continue. At Lufthansa, Andreas stacked up 100 hours of training time. In the spring of 2011, Andreas returned to Germany to continue his training on actual jets and stack up his compulsory 1,500 hours to become an airline pilot. And during this time, there was a rumor that he also worked as a cabin crew member for Lufthansa to fill in hours. The rumor continues that Andreas was bullied with homophobic slurs by pilots who considered cabin crew jobs to be effeminate. Now, I would take this bit in Lou Bit's history with a grain of salt because there is no concrete evidence to this claim aside from tabloid news. However, there have been documented cases of discrimination against male air stewards. So, if it is true that Andreas was an air steward at some point, is it possible that this bullying was yet another added factor to his fragile mental state? However, it is important to note that during this period of his life, there were no recorded instances of mental breakdowns from Andreas. So, is it possible that Andreas was able to hide all of that growing chaos within himself? During this time, and since the authorities were aware of his history, it was suggested that Andreas check into Lufthansa regularly so that a medical professional could examine if he had relapsed into depression. But the records don't state how often he was supposed to make those appointments, nor do they show if he even kept up with them. Meanwhile, Andreas Lubitz would scale through the final stages of training, rack up the hours, and finally achieve his childhood dreams of becoming an airline pilot. He ascended to first officer, and his first official assignments involved co-piloting short flights within Germany. To the casual observer, 2013 was a perfect year for Mr. Andreas Lubitz. Aside from the lack of any visible depressive episodes, the young pilot's career was moving at the exact pace and path he had dreamt of as a child. It was so steady that he felt comfortable enough to start a serious relationship with his girlfriend, an elementary school teacher named Katrin Goldbach. And the two lovebirds moved into a luxury apartment he had acquired in Dusseldorf. Katrin was Andreas's first love, and they had known each other since they were just teens, working together at a Burger King in Montebauer. She would later describe to investigators that the early days of her official relationship with Andreas were stable and passionate. Stable enough that they planned to marry, and passionate enough that they were already considering having two kids. Meanwhile, Andreas was also in touch with his parents in Montebauer, returning occasionally to spend time with them, and involved enough in his hometown's activities that he participated in local half marathons. Again, if you had asked friends at home and his colleagues at work about Andreas, they would tell you nothing was amiss. You wouldn't be able to tell that he had suffered from depression in the past. Andreas was calm and composed, a man who possessed all the qualities one would require from a commercial pilot. But as you might have already guessed, this was just one big bubble, and things were about to get worse dramatically worse. In December of 2014, Andreas Lubitz's depressive episodes returned with a vengeance. This time they came with a psychosomatic disorder. A psychosomatic disorder is a psychological condition where an individual experiences physical symptoms of illness that lack a medical explanation. 
People with this condition may have excessive thoughts, feelings, or concerns about the symptoms, which ultimately affect their ability to function properly. In Andreas's case, this symptom was declining eyesight. For reasons he could not explain, he was losing his ability to see clearly. There were occasional streaks of light, flashes, he had double vision, and he was also photosensitive. He met several ophthalmologists and told them about these symptoms. However, after checking his eyes, none of the ophthalmologists found anything wrong. Medically, there was nothing wrong with Andreas Lubitz. They couldn't find any biological cause for his perceived waning eyesight. Much later, these medical professionals would also inform investigators that they noticed that Andreas was in a constant state of heightened fear. Eventually, a neurologist would diagnose Andreas with hypochondria, an anxiety disorder where the individual worries excessively about their illness despite the lack of any physical symptoms. Unsurprisingly, Andreas rejected this diagnosis. He refused to accept that the issues he had suddenly developed could be a mental illness, and he became determined to find someone who would see things from his perspective. So Andreas took a trip to Montebauer, his hometown, to see his family doctor, not the culpable psychiatrist we mentioned earlier. But as fate would have it, his family doctor also reported the same thing the other professionals had. The family doctor diagnosed him as having an emergent psychosis and advised him to check himself into a psychiatric clinic. But once again, Andreas rejected that diagnosis and disregarded the advice. It wasn't until his mother stepped in that Andreas began to consider that his worsening vision could actually be a mental issue. So in January, he got in contact with that same Montebauer psychiatrist we had mentioned earlier that had treated him several times before. The psychiatrist, fully aware of Andreas's history of depression, resumed psychotherapy sessions with him. But there was another problem. Andreas also actively resumed his dosage of mirtazapine and lorazepam, using it while continuing his normal work and flight schedule. He was breaking the rules. He knew this. He knew that if his condition and the drug he was using ever came to light, his aviation career would be over. So Andreas kept the knowledge of his declining mental health and his drug use from his superiors. During this period, Andreas also developed chronic insomnia. So in an effort to cope with his creeping despair, his psychiatrist instructed him to record any happy thoughts he had in a happiness diary. Now, the question you might want to ask at this point is, why didn't the psychiatrist report Andreas's state to the appropriate authorities? There are a couple of reasons why that might have happened. On one hand, German privacy laws are incredibly restrictive when it comes to patient-doctor confidentiality. However, provisions exist within that same law that permit psychiatrists to notify relevant parties, including an employer, if they believe a patient could present a danger to the lives of others. Provisions that the Montebauer psychiatrist cannot pretend they are not aware of. However, this psychiatrist did nothing, said nothing, and did not lift as much as a finger to contact Lufthansa about Andreas's relapse or the use of drugs he had prescribed. Meanwhile, as Andreas's relapse was setting in, his relationship with Katrin was headed for the rocks. Katrin would reveal to investigators that even before Andreas's visible relapse, she had begun noticing very odd behavior from the man. He suffered from extreme mood swings. He also suffered from persistent nightmares, waking up in the middle of the night screaming in terror. We're going down. According to her, Andreas was a tormented soul who managed to keep his secrets to himself. He also had compulsive controlling tendencies and was obsessive about the minutest of detail. Catherine thought she could manage these parts of him in the beginning, but over time, it got worse as Andreas tried to wield more and more control over her. 
He would try to dictate everything about her life, down to the length of the skirt she wore. Andreas's controlling behavior was even evident to workers in his neighborhood. The owner of a pizza restaurant near the Lubitz Duffeldorf home would tell investigators that Andreas obsessed over weird things, like specific toppings on his pizza. And it went beyond just preferences. He was never interested in what was on the menu. It was often paprika, ham, onion, and broccoli. And if any of those were missing, he would throw a fit. For Katrin, the final straw came when she discovered that Andreas was also having an affair. Andreas had been sleeping with an air stewardess for at least five months. And when Katrin found out, she called off her relationship with him. At the time, she had a steady job at a local elementary school, which she didn't want to lose. So while she saved to get a place of her own in the area, she was forced to stay at his place for the time being. And unsurprisingly, Andreas tried hard to win her back. He went as far as spending thousands of euros on an identical pair of luxurious Audi cars for the both of them, but it didn't work. By early March, Andreas was witnessing his life fall apart before his eyes. His depression wasn't getting any better. His girlfriend was done with him, and his career was threatened. So Andreas began to entertain thoughts of death. And we know this because his internet search history around this period was just different variations of how he intended to take his life. Carbon monoxide, drinking gasoline, which poison kills without pain? By the 18th of March, Andreas made a visit to a Dusseldorf physician. A visit that, retrospectively, appears to be his final effort to save himself. This Dusseldorf physician with no prior knowledge of his history of mental health issues, wrote him a sick leave note effective for four days, indicating that Lubitz suffered from a persistent vision disorder with a thus far unknown origin. But while at home on his break, Andreas's condition didn't improve. In fact, he began to entertain an entirely new sinister method of taking his life. On the evening of the 20th of March, Andreas searched the internet for information about the locking mechanism on an Airbus A320 cockpit door. That same night, he told Katrin he was planning a spectacular gesture to make everyone remember who he was. He told her he would do something that would change the system. At the time, an unsuspecting Katrin didn't have the faintest clue what he meant by those statements. She also wouldn't realize until after the incident that she was carrying his child. Two days later, just before going to work, Andreas scribbled down Decision Sunday, along with the flight code BCN for Barcelona on a scrap of notebook paper that was later retrieved from the trash in his apartment. The next day was Monday the 23rd. Andreas flew a round trip between Dusseldorf and Berlin, and the pilot who traveled with him recalled that his behavior was completely normal. By the 24th, Andreas parked his Audi in the lot at Dusseldorf Airport and climbed into the cockpit for the 7 a.m. outbound flight to Barcelona. On the 24th of March 2015, two hours before flight 9525 crashed into the Alps, Martin Matthews, a 50-year-old engineer for the German auto parts manufacturer HUF, was flying back from a business trip in Barcelona when he chose to board an indirect flight to Dusseldorf. Martin Matthews was a husband, a father of two, a soccer fan, avid hiker, and native of Wolverhampton, a city in the British Midlands. And he had chosen flight 9525 so that he could return to his family as quickly as possible. When the German Wings Gate staff at Terminal 2 in Barcelona's El Prat Airport began the boarding process for flight 9525, 
he was one of the first to board. His seat was in front, away from the window so he could have a clear view of the cockpit door, and was close enough to the exit to be one of the first to leave. On the 24th of March 2015, two hours before Flight 9525 crashed into the Alps, two accomplished opera singers, Maria Radner and Oleg Briak, approached Terminal 2 of Barcelona's El Prat Airport. They had recently concluded a week-long performance at Barcelona's Gran Teatre Dalicio. Maria Radner was with her husband, Sasha Shank, and their toddler son, Felix. And in the minutes before the plane took off, they would find their seats in row 19. On the 24th of March 2015, two hours before Flight 9525 crashed into the Alps, 16 students and two teachers from the German town of Haltenamsey were on their way back home from a week-long exchange program in Barcelona. As they approached Terminal 2, they were as excited as they were exhausted as they were homesick. Inside the plane, they found their seats in the rear rows that they had completely booked. For 26 minutes, the Airbus was delayed at the gate past its scheduled departure time of 9.35 a.m. Then, it taxied to the runway and the flight began. Welcome on board. This is Captain Patrick Sodenheim speaking, began the apologetic address that streamed from the plane's PA system. Captain Sodenheimer was a veteran who had gathered 6,000 hours in the air. His grandmother would describe him as an outgoing, enthusiastic, and helpful man who radiated happiness. And it wasn't difficult to find the truth in this description. After spending years on long-haul flights, Lufthansa had recently allowed him to make a switch to this airline so that he could spend more time with his family, his wife and two kids. So as flight 9525 flew over the Mediterranean, Sodenheimer apologized to his passengers for the delay. Some moments later, he turned to his co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, and told him that he had forgotten to go to the bathroom before they boarded. Andreas calmly responded, go anytime. At 10.27 a.m. after the Airbus had reached its cruising altitude of 38,000 feet, Sodenheimer instructed Andreas to begin preparing for landing since it was just a two-hour flight. This routine included gauging the fuel levels, ensuring that the flaps and landing gear were working, and checking the latest airport and weather information. Andreas responded, hopefully we'll see. Captain Sodenheimer did not respond to his co-pilot's odd choice of words. He couldn't have imagined the macabre intent Andreas had festering in his mind as he pushed his seat back, opened the cockpit door, closed it behind him, and went to the bathroom. The time was 10.30 a.m. The black box from the flight would reveal that while Captain Sodenheimer was out, Lubitz briefly switched the plane's automatic pilot to 100 feet, the lowest setting, a test run for the return journey. Then he switched it back again before any air traffic controllers would take notice. Then Andreas began to set his destructive plans for the flight into motion. Andreas moved the cockpit door toggle switch, located on the pedestal to the left of his seat, from normal to locked position, disabling Sodenheimer's emergency access code and effectively locking him out. Moments later, he reached forward and turned the dial on the automatic pilot to bring the plane down to 100 feet. Just before 10.31 a.m. after crossing the French coast near Toulon, the aircraft left its cruising altitude and began dropping at a rate of 3,500 feet per minute or 58 feet per second. At this point, the passengers probably sensed a slight dip and change in pressure, though it's doubtful that it caused any concern. But French air traffic controllers noticed the unauthorized change and contacted the aircraft. Andreas didn't reply. 
Sodenheimer returned three minutes later, at 10.34am. On a keypad outside the cockpit, he punched in his access code, but the response was access denied. It's me, he screamed as he knocked rapidly on the door. Flight attendants who had already started wheeling their snacks and beverage carts down the aisle immediately noticed the commotion in front. A closed circuit camera would have transmitted Sodenheimer's image to a small television inside the cockpit, but Andreas ignored it. The situation was dire and Sodenheimer began banging on the door with all his might, but it was futile. Andreas had no intention of responding. Then Sodenheimer yelled, for the love of God, open this door. At this point, the plane was about 25,000 feet. All the passengers would have begun to feel the steep decline. Fear would have engulfed the cabin. Some would have been crying, some praying, some trying to help, and some frozen in their seats. At 10.39 a.m., Sodenheimer called for a flight attendant to bring him a crowbar hidden in the back of the plane. Grabbing the steel rod, Sodenheimer began smashing the door, trying to pry it and break it open. The plane had dropped to below 10,000 feet. In the cockpit, Andreas must have stared in horror at the massive snow-topped Alps as they seemed to approach faster than the mass death he was successfully orchestrating and appeared to loom larger than whatever life he had left. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe his eyes were closed. What difference does it make? Meanwhile, Sodenheimer's voice would have been ringing in his ears as he repeated his plea while thrashing at the door. Open the damn door. Passengers must have been screaming. Did he hear them too? Did Martin Matthews try to help the pilot? His wife believed he would have. He was never one to ignore a situation that needed a hand or two. And Maria Radner, her husband, and her toddler son Felix, did Andrea sense their fear? Would he have heard the toddler cry? At 10.40 a.m., an alarm blared. Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. The plane dipped to 7,000 feet. A shrill alarm went off in the few seconds before impact. Rock to metal, a collision at 5,000 feet. The Airbus's right wing was mangled by the Alps at 403 miles per hour. And what happened next is beyond my imagination, but I'll leave it to yours. Unsurprisingly, the aftermath of the crash was characterized by outrage and utter chaos on every side. The families of the victims were devastated and angry. After the black box had been recovered, the evidence and investigations found that Andreas Lubitz was the culprit of the unthinkable crime that led to the terrible disaster. Yet, for some reason, Andreas's family refused to believe the verdict. In fact, they would later believe that he was set up. Meanwhile, Andreas's girlfriend found out that she was pregnant and would become understandably worried about her safety as emotions hit the roof. Then there was a mass burial which Klaus Regner, the father of opera singer Maria Regner, boycotted because he believed that there were 149 victims and one killer, and the killer's remains did not deserve to be mixed with everyone else. The flight operator German Wings, which was a low-cost, wholly-owned subsidiary of Lufthansa, Europe's largest airline, had its relatively spotless reputation tarnished as everyone continued asking how. How could a trusted German airline have allowed a dangerously unstable pilot to take control of its airplane? Meanwhile, Lufthansa tried to save face by funding the funeral, covering the family's travel expenses and giving each family a sum that felt more like an insult than compensation. 50,000 euros each for the lives lost. And as if this wasn't insulting enough, a representative of Lufthansa described the airline as a victim of the crash. And the company CEO, Karsten Schwor, 
behaved publicly like he didn't have a clue how the crash happened, insisting that Lou Bitz had been 100% fit to fly and there was no need to change the airline's screening procedures. However, he would reverse his stance and introduce a new policy across its airlines, requiring the presence of two crew members in the cockpit at all times, a policy that was later abandoned. Meanwhile, the families of the victims sued Lufthansa, demanding an average of 250,000 euros in compensation for each immediate family member. But Germany's strict liability and wrongful death laws meant that Lufthansa could get away with paying a low sum for almost all of those who died. And the company was under no obligation to pay an extra cent for the emotional pain of the husbands, wives, and children of the victims, unless those individuals could present medical proof that they had suffered a debilitating illness, mental or physical, as a result of the loss. Eventually, lawyers representing the families were able to get Lufthansa to increase the sum to 75,000 euros for the family of every victim, as well as 10,000 euros in pain and suffering compensation to every close relative of a victim. While this disrespectful legal circus was ongoing, politicians did what politicians often do in these situations. They offered condolences, set up committees, and paid respects. Yet nothing could bring back those who had been lost. No amount of money, no amount of consolations or corrected policies. For the victims of the families, all that was left was grief because the main culprit was no more. A culprit that not only caused his victims pain, but also left everyone else with more questions than answers. Questions I've tried and failed to answer from the beginning of this video. Why did Andreas Lubitz do what he did? Why didn't he choose a lone suicide? Why did he choose to take the lives of many? What in his broken, tortured psyche made him feel a mass murder was the way to go? Why? Thanks for tuning in to Twisted Minds. That was the case of Andreas Lubitz. And why don't you go ahead and click on one of the two videos on your screen for another one of our videos.